loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today I'm talking with Phyllis Schachter. Phyllis has been a teacher, business consultant, life coach, and public speaker. Today she uses her skills to share her personal story as a platform to educate others about expanding end-of-life choices. Her book, Choosing to Die, is both a memoir and a guidebook and is the first personal story ever written about VSED, which is Voluntarily Stopping Eating and Drinking. Phyllis' husband decided to VSED rather than live into the late stages of Alzheimer's. Choosing to Die is their love story. It's a book about their partnership and the brave territory they traversed, including how they prepared themselves with proper medical and legal guidance. It's available on Amazon, and she's a frequent speaker and educator about this topic. She has a TEDx talk called Not Here by Choice, and that's on the homepage of her website, phyllisschachter.com. That's P-H-Y-L-L-I-S-S-H-A-C-T-E-R.com. Welcome, Phyllis. Thank you very much, Cheryl. It's nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Glad to have you. And And I realized way back when we first made contact with each other that my grandfather on unofficially employed VSED after a stroke. Uh, He, I don't know, a day or two after the stroke, just locked his lips, and that is how he died. And, um, you know, I imagine that that was something that probably got fought by the people uh, that were caring for him as opposed to your story of really preparing and having support underneath you for that. But um, it gave me a kind of different angle on that, uh, on his death. I think that if we talked to people, we would find many stories like yours. And um, they're kind of variations on a theme. Basically, the theme is ending your life ultimately by stopping eating and drinking. And it's the no liquids um, that causes dehydration that really is what causes a person to die because you can live quite a while, some you know months, um, with not having food but still drinking. However, the distinction in what you're saying about your grandfather is that he had a stroke, so he, he was very close. Well, actually, was he very close to death? Do you know? I think he was just severely disabled. I right, don't know so that he. I don't know that he de- necessarily would have died. You see, uh, right. <laughs> because you know, stroke and severe. I mean, I've had friends whose parents have lived for years and years and years in a severely disabled condition after right. a bad stroke. So yeah, I don't. Like I don't think like- his death was imminent. It sounds like uh, he was aware that his brain was working well enough and that he was aware of the choice that he was making. He didn't want to suffer and live in that state. I believe so. And also what's interesting is that, uh, you know, my grandmother's long since dead, but when we talked about it, I got the sense that she admired his choice. Um, That that there was some sense that um, he made the best choice for both of them and that she considered it yeah. sort of brave, uh, which, isn't, yeah. which isn't necessarily, uh, you know, the way that people come at it, as we'll talk about, um, the way that people come at it um, currently. I think it's very different when you're personally involved and you have this person in front of you that you love so much, and you don't want them to suffer. Who Indeed. Wants somebody that, who wants someone that they love? Who wants anyone? I don't want anyone to suffer. 
But there's a lot of suffering, and there's a lot of suffering around end-of-life issues because it's not something that we're comfortable with. We don't talk about it. It's not part of our mainstream conversation. It's not something that we start teaching children about, you know, uh, in school. I think that's going to change. I think it's in process. I, I feel it's even different since I first started doing this show. But, of course, I'm 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 very exposed to everyone doing that work. Uh, but I do right. think that there's a different conversation beginning to happen um, more generally as opposed to just in the hospice community or just in the palliative care community or just in the grief community. You know, it seems to be spreading out to society in general. So I think that's very wonderful, actually. Yeah, and I see... Um, an- a noteworthy difference since my husband died almost four and a half years ago. And um, I like to think that I'm part of the paradigm that's changing this conversation and this reality. Yes. Because the only thing, the only thing that's for certain after we're born is that we're going to die. And it's the topic that nobody wants to talk about. For sure. So let's talk about Alan specifically uh, okay. to to start out with. You know, interestingly, um, your book is certainly about that choice to voluntarily stop eating and drinking. And there's a lot of information in it, and you know, based on your experience and more. But it's also a book about living. It's a book about quality. And it's a book about grief. It's kind of all of those things, I would say. Yeah. Which, would yeah. you agree? So, so that... Yeah. Inclines me to start with your relationship with ha- with Alan, how he came to this conclusion, um, you know, kind of the background of this way that he chose to leave his body. Okay. The interesting thing, um, we had a 26-year marriage, a beautiful marriage. Um, it was not a first marriage for either one of us. And when I was about 40 and he was close to 50 is when we came together and um, both had similar values and perspectives and were ready just to say yes to one another. Um, I knew going into our marriage that he had a lot of neurological disease in his family and it, that information just kind of was always in the background for me. Um, we... Notice the first signs of Alan's cognitive decline probably by the early, early 2007, maybe even the end of 2006. Alan was a very, very bright man. He was a Harvard graduate and did some very innovative things in his life. He was a very gentle man. He was a, a musician. I never met anyone who didn't like him. He also was a very, very quiet man. And so when these cognitive dissonances, I'll call them, began to occur, we didn't really talk about them for a while. And then we both began to notice that things were amiss. His driving habits weren't very good anymore. I noticed that he didn't, couldn't pay attention very well in the same way. He was, um, uh, he worked on one of the first computers. I think he did work on the first computer that was ever um, developed at Harvard. And um, I noticed that when he would be working at the computer, and if I interrupted him, he would get very upset because he couldn't get back to where he was. And that had never been the case before. So this Mm. went on for a while and we both decided that he needed to be diagnosed by a neuropsychologist and he was, and they couldn't find anything. So there's a particular part of the brain, I assume that would not be working properly. And of course they recognized his huge intelligence. Time went on. I took over all the driving. I began to assume more responsibilities in our house. And then in 2009, we said, I think it's time. You got to go back and get tested again. Went back to the same neuropsychologist. The same two and a half hour profile was given to him. They couldn't find anything. Hmm. And then in 2011, we went back for the third time. And 
the neuropsychologist said, you have dementia of the Alzheimer's type. And only six weeks later, he was also diagnosed with laryngeal cancer because he had been having a viral wart removed from his right vocal cords uh, since um, 2006. Um, It was an HPV viral wart, and it became cancerous. So here we were dealing with these two issues, and... Kind of a double sucker punch, huh? It was it was unimaginable. Truly, it was unimaginable to be dealing with both of these, especially because the surgeon said, you're going to die a painful death within 6 to 12 months if you don't have three surgeries, and there'll be a 30% chance that you won't be able to speak, swallow, or breathe easily after these surgeries. So... What's interesting, an interesting point about our story as I'm leading up to how he made the decision is that he never once asked me what I thought he should do. We both shared the same information, but he really made the decisions himself. So once he got the double diagnosis, um, I actually was in contact at that point with End of Life Washington, which used to be called Compassion and Choices of Washington. Mm-hmm. And, there, and I learned that as a result of the diagnosis, we learned as a result of his cancer diagnosis, he actually qualified for the death with dignity law. We met with two doctors up here in our hometown, and he qualified, and we had the lethal prescription. We never filled it. It was in our files. And um, through alternative means, which I won't go into a lot of detail here, but I did devote an entire chapter to it in my book, um, he healed naturally from the cancer in four months. He knew that he would never end up a whole human being again with those kinds of invasive surgeries cut right into his throat. And he knew that there would be side effects to the anesthesiology and even though the doctors wouldn't admit that. So he decided he wasn't going to have cancer. I mean, he wasn't going to have, um, actually, he did decide he wasn't going to have cancer. <laughs> there are a number of things. <laughs> <Kind of both. laughs> yeah, I mean, actually, we did naturopathy, group prayer, but 75 or 80 people prayed a prayer that he wrote and said it every night at 7.30, and we said it with him for four months. And he was a practitioner of neuro-linguistic programming, which in its briefest explanation has to do with limiting beliefs, and he visualized his cure. And the surgeon actually said the words that he had visualized when he told him he didn't have cancer anymore. Anyway, we had, so we had the death with dignity prescription. He never used it. He healed from cancer, and in a relatively short period of time, a matter of a couple of months at the most, we both noticed a significant um, worsening of the Alzheimer's. And uh, when we noticed this together and talked about it, we just cried and cried and held each other for about a week. And he wasn't sure what he was going to do. And it's not as if we knew many alternatives. I contacted End of Life Washington again, and um, I learned, of course, that the death with dignity law cannot be used with neurological disease because you have to be in the last six months of life and mentally competent and be able to self-administer the drug. So um, Alzheimer's patients and most people with neurological disease, no matter how many states pass that law, will not be able to take advantage of it. So I had more contact with a volunteer chaplain at End of Life Washington, and she said, have you ever heard of GSED? Never. I said, no. She says, why don't you do some legal research about it? And so I did. And probably in less than a half an hour, I found the kind of premier article called Voluntarily Stopping Eating and Drinking, a Legal Treatment Option at the End of Life written by Thaddeus Pope and Lindsay Anderson. Thaddeus Pope is a health law professor and attorney in the state of Minnesota. So I printed out this very long 
article, read it myself, gave it to Alan to read. And after he read it, he said, I've made up my mind. This is what I'm going to do. You know, of course, I'm aware from reading your book that before all this, you had a pretty a pretty uh, visceral fear of death of your own, of other people's. And uh, so all this finding information for him and confronting end of life, uh, in my mind, goes on in that context of you as a person, um, a, uh, responding to and adjusting to his decisions. And uh, we're a, about ready for a break, but when we get back, I'd love to talk about your experience during that period as he's making these decisions and of course as far as I'm concerned the final word does have to be the person whose <laughs> life it actually right. is but but nonetheless such a profound effect on all the rest of us out here so let's talk about that when we get back okay and listeners and listeners you can find links to my website and social media at the good grief page at voice america uh, please be in touch with me. I love hearing from you. And to find Phyllis Schachter and her book, you can go to Phyllis Schachter, and that's S-H-A-C-T-E-R dot com. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Relationship issues, anxious, parenting challenges, no more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Phyllis Schachter, who wrote Choosing to Die, which is about uh, the process of voluntarily stopping eating and drinking, um, which her husband, uh, her husband's life ended that way, or at least bodily life ended that way. Um, and before the break, Phyllis, I was just saying, you know, here is... Uh, Alan making these decisions, and um, I, I um, applaud your ability to really leave that with him because, of course, a lot of people out of their own fear try to make the person do this or that, whatever it might be, and it sounds as if you supported him in making those decisions. But I'm also so aware um, from my own experience and in general how that that might have been for you. And I was hoping we could start, start with you reading um, 
the segment of your book about your own fears of of death and and then talk about how that came into things with you and Alan. Okay, thank you. Here's the quote. For many years, my fear of my own death was inextricably bound up with my fear of the death of my mother and then of my husband. I was emotionally paralyzed when I couldn't imagine life without them. Now they have both died, and I have survived. Not only am I alive, I'm living with a great deal of joyous gratitude, a deep sense of self-reliance, and interdependence with others. My fear of death is gone. Where did it go? Though I did not realize it at the time, my experience of grief over my mother's and my husband's death was extreme, partly because I was grieving my own death at the same time. My fear of being left alone was, in part, my fear of having no one around me as I aged and died. As my grief over my terrible losses began to ebb, so did my fear of death in general, and specifically my own death. It definitely helped me to see them both die in great peace and with no fear. Both of them even had curiosity about what it would be like to die and what would come next. This made an impression on me. Whenever I thought about death, I felt like I was suffocating and being annihilated, which truly frightened me. My willingness to experience my grief fully is precisely what allowed me to finally be free of it. If I had tried to pretend the pain was not there, busied myself so I wouldn't have to feel it, kept myself distracted or covered it up with false happiness, it would still be there beneath the surface, keeping me a slave to the cover-ups so I would not have to feel it. Only by experiencing the pain and surviving could I, in the end, be truly fear of it. And the unexpected gift, as I emerged on the other side of my painful despair, was the gift of accepting that I am going to die and that this is okay. This is Alan's most important legacy to me. To live without the underlying fear of death is like being a bird in flight. I am free. This really touched me because uh, my wife's been dead since 1995. So, you know, watching how that experience weaves itself through my life... um, I, I experienced her death as as extremely, and this might sound strange, but extremely positive, uh, uh-huh. which absolutely absolutely shocked me. And and ki- quite similar to you, it it kind of ended my fear of death in any way that can convince me for very long. Um, one because I just know that people do it, <laughs> you know, that she. Right. She did it, that my parents did it, that um, many friends since, and that um, there's, there's peace often at that moment. And that, I find that very comforting because like you, I was kind of fearful of aloneness, fearful of abandonment, which ultimately I think is probably a fear of death in some form. And that uh-huh. just ended for me. So I really resonated with that passage in that way. But I'm also aware this is, you wrote that kind of as a um, uh, expression of the process of grief. And that that was still very active when Alan was making these decisions and was was ill. And I wondered how given that you were leaving the decisions to him, how did you handle that fear at the time? I lived with the fear and anxiety. I decided I would do that. I walked in the direction of my fear right from the beginning. I'm not sure how I knew to do that other than when I was in my 20s, I began to read uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. And I remember one of his essays talked specifically about God will not have his work made manifest by cowards and walk in the direction of your fears. And these were like concepts that I kind of traveled with during my life. And by the time, um, around the time I 
met Alan, I became more interested in Eastern philosophy. I remember I read the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying a couple of times. I mm-hmm. read a lot by Pema Chodron and Stephen Levine and Naomi Rachel Remen. I read about these things, and I just stayed with the feeling. And it was excruciating, Cheryl. I mean, I would say my grieving began about two years, a good two years, maybe even longer before he actually died. And for about two years, when I'd wake up in the middle of the night, go to the bathroom, in a nanosecond, the very first thought was, how is this all going to resolve itself? So Mm. the ambiguity of how this was going to play out was almost unbearable. At the same time, I made the commitment to Alan and to myself that I was going to be his advocate and that I was going to do and support whatever it is that he wanted. And, and that's what I did. I did not have a Phyllis to go to. It's one of the main motivations for me to write the book because it really is the first book about this. And I talk about it, you know, um, in perspectives of there's to prepare ourselves to die to prepare ourselves to be able to walk alongside of a loved one who is dying, there's preparation in mind, body, and spirit. And I had to experience all three, and it took me years to experience it. But I made the conscious decision that I knew that the only way out of the fear was to go through it, and that if I did anything to try to make it go faster or to busy myself, or to camouflage it with something that would make me feel good medicinally or whatever, that um, I would never, that I would, I actually believed I would become a sick woman and would not survive. Hmm. So I made a decision. I really made these decisions. Whatever it takes, I'm going to do this. I had no control. I mean, I'd go for the first probably almost, I'd say at least a year, I'd be in public places, and if somebody said, how are you doing, I'd usually just dissolve in tears, even if I was in the, you know, aisle of the grocery store, and I didn't even know (laughs) the person well. I mean, that's the truth. But I I let that all happen. The first six months, I, there were probably three, four, or five times a day where I, I spent a lot of time alone during that period of time, and I just doubled over in pain on the floor, sobbing missing my husband, trying to not make sense of it, but just allowing myself to feel what I was feeling. You know, that's, that's so important. Uh, It's very familiar to me um, that, that when you, when you kind of uh, get on board with just letting, letting yourself be, uh, to me, I, what developed for me in that decision was the astonishing idea that I could actually handle it. <laughs> you know, that wow. I could be that I could be in whatever it was that was going on, that it was a safe territory, uh, which which yeah. really surprised me for sure. and I and I hear that kind of along the edges that you could actually, you could actually go towards your hardest feelings and come out the other end. Of course, Stephen Levine was a very important teacher to me, so I resonate with that that yeah. part too. Um, I, I allowed myself to be vulnerable. Um, I knew really that the only way out was to go through. I didn't know that I'd ever get out of it. That I never knew. But I knew it was the only hope was to fully experience it. And I just, you know, took care of myself. I was tender toward myself. And I slowly, very slowly, began to develop some inner strength. And and um, I just kept walking in the direction of my fear until it left me. I don't understand it completely. It's not a linear experience. It isn't, is it? But it's, it's sort of that uh, what is the next step forward feeling what's what's the next step to take i have to say that the that the time in reading your book that i that i felt the most pain i guess 
is yeah. the the mixed uh, ways that other people responded because you made another uh, choice together that um, is notable, which is to be open about his right. choice and and right. what was going to go on, um, which which of course you are now living out by being on this show, re, you know, writing your book, everything you do, but that that it, at those moments of such deep vulnerability to make that kind of choice has its own difficulties. And I wondered if you could talk um, about, you know, how people responded and the di- the different ways they did and how that was for the two of you. I'm going to say in my response that while negativity was circling around us and some of it came directly to us, I did everything in my power to not let that information get to my husband. I didn't tell him all the things that people were saying because Mm. he was facing his death. And at that point, as we got closer and closer, we weren't conversing a lot. He was in the middle stages of Alzheimer's. The last substantive conversation I had with him was about four months before he died. And actually, it's almost a transcript. It was such a beautiful conversation. It's in the appendix to my book. And I told him I would share the information someday if I ever wrote a book. But um, I I will say that um, I can only speak for myself now that I knew we were paving the way for others. Uh, I'm the first year of the baby boomers. I mean, this generation and generations behind us are not going to silently just walk into dementia facilities without even giving an, a thought to choice about their degenerative disease that they're dealing with. So how did I deal with it? It added to... <laughs> It added to my anxiety. I didn't mm-hmm. really deal with it, except there were a couple things. I can remember two people. They were close friends, actually. And they waited to the last week right before he was going to start. And they began, one, you know, contacted me on the phone. And I knew she had never experienced the kind of love that I had experienced with my husband. And I basically told people, you know, not to come around us. I told her that on the conversation if she couldn't support us. Um, A lot of the gossip was that gossip where it didn't come directly in our faces. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I'll tell you the the negativity that affected me the most was when our own hospice led us to believe... um, that they would support us through the, through the process, and then that didn't occur. There are many hospices um, in the country, uh, certainly a lot of them in the state of Washington, that are owned by the Catholic Church, and this was not, you know, part of their belief system. They did not tell me that. As the, the date got close, they just said, We're not, we won't help you until he's in the last stage of coma, which would have been the day that he died, and, of course, he would have suffered a lot. That was really hard for me because what I had to do, and that's another reason why I wrote the book. I mean, people need a lot of time to set things up properly. And it would be wonderful if every hospice comes through, but every hospice isn't going to come through. Some will, you know. I mean, in these last years where people have contacted me as they've learned about me from various presentations and my TED Talk and my extensive website, I mean, people have contacted me and people are having good VSED deaths. They're not meeting that same kind of resistance. And if there's resistance, what do I say? Don't have those people around you. Take care of yourself. Take care of your loved one that you're helping. Don't go up against the resistance. You later on. Yes. I, I think it's very important what you said in your book about the difference between suicide and VSED. I wonder if you'd read that couple of paragraphs so people can... I, I, yeah, I grasped that because a lot of the negativity came up around the question. People were saying, is he committing suicide? Right. When Alan made his decision to DSED, some people worried, is he committing suicide? 
this is a legitimate question, and I believe it is important for the VSED movement to be careful about our language. Personally, I would like the word suicide to be eliminated from our vocabulary when we speak of VSED or death with dignity. These are not suicides, but rather elective deaths. Suicide is secretive, often violent, outside the natural order, woefully ill-considered, and usually devastating to others. It is saying a giant no to life. By contrast, Alan was saying yes to life, up to his last breath on his terms. His death was peaceful and completely in rhythm with the natural order. It was a deeply considered decision based on self-love, peace, and compassion for himself and for those around him. Alan's plan and decision was not secretive, but shared with many who loved him. He died not alone, but surrounded by love. He was grateful for the good life he had lived and grateful to have the choice to VSED. There's a world of difference between suicide and elective death. All people who thoughtfully pursue elective death should be granted the respect of terminology that distinguishes their choice from the sudden, often horrifying, ill-considered, negative choice of suicide. I think that's powerful. And when we get back from this break, I want to talk about, you know, I work in the cancer field. And so uh, people at the end of their lives of cancer have really unimaginable choices because the medical profession will just keep offering more and more and more. And this idea that if you say no more, you're kind of uh, suiciding is really damaging. So I want to talk more about that because I think that really could be of use to people. And and listen. And listeners, we, you can go to my website, weatheringgrief.com. You can go to my Good Grief host page. And you can go to phyllisschachter.com, S-H-A-C-T-E-R, to find Phyllis. Back after the break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Phyllis Schachter, author of Choosing to Die, about her husband Alan's death by uh, voluntarily stopping eating and drinking. And um, we had just begun to talk before the break about how much the medical community and people using the medical community, patients, um, struggle with this idea of more and more and more treatment and, uh, you know, I, I've i often worked with people, let's say, whose parents are dying of Alzheimer's, you know, and have been sick for a long, 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 long time and are, are basically no longer present. And, um, you know, we'll be talking and they'll say, oh, um, she got, 
she got an infection and we had to give her antibiotics. That would be a for instance. Yeah. And I'll say and I'll say at what point would you not treat that? You know, not oh you shouldn't have or anything, of course, but at what point would you not? And um people haven't really thought in that way often that um you know, there are sort of natural ways to um, surrender to death or to to elect death that are not uh, going to make death worse or, you know, um, but but people are not used to thinking in that way. They're used to thinking if medical science has it, of course I'd do it. Um, so I wonder if you could kind of, you know, because of course Alan had to make this choice when he could still make it when he still had the cognition to make it and follow through with it. So could you talk some about uh, that? That represents a viewpoint, doesn't it? It absolutely does. It does, and it goes in the face of, you know, um, the medical profession. And for whatever reasons, um, a lot of people, you know, put doctors up on pedestals as opposed to just seeing them um, certainly as as peers when it comes to end of life because every doctor is going to die too, and they know that. The interesting thing about that is um, across the street from me, there's a chaplain who's um, worked in our local hospital for about 20 years, and he told me in all the years he's worked there, there has only been one case of a doctor being hooked up to machinery um, in, you know, at the end to prolong their life, one. So they, you know, doctors obviously have different perspectives too. Um, I think it's real hard for doctors though to talk to their patients about this. How we die, it starts when we're young, you know, so um, Alan had prepared himself, mind, body, and spirit throughout his life and the kind of man he was. And so he was able to walk in the, uh, he didn't have a lot of fear, actually. I had to walk in the direction of my fear. He didn't have to, but um on my floor is a, is a, is a paper. I, it's the first thing I see when I wake up in the morning. It's in red, the writing, and it says, is this the day I'm going to die? I want to live my life that way now. Mm. I want to have death right up front and center every day. When Alan, we, we both started doing our health directives, you know, I don't know, 30 years ago or whatever, and what we hoped for was that Alan would have gotten an acute illness like a bladder infection or sepsis or pneumonia and that we wouldn't treat it and that he wouldn't have to VSED and that he would die that way. That's a good way to die. Not many you know, they, doctors yes. Not many doctors educate their patients about that. They don't talk. I mean, the idea of choice around one's death is not a conversation at the doctor. And so we have to do that ourselves now. I mean, I believe this is, we're, you know, we're in a paradigm shift. It's happening slowly but surely. But um, the truth is, is that the only thing is certain after we take our first breath, as I said earlier, is that we're going to die. Um, how are we going to plan for this grand event so that we can have a good death? I heard of a of a sect of Tibetan. I think it's Tibetan Buddhism once, and their uh, their lamas uh, are chosen as children, as is often true. And right. their first work is to sit with dying people. Um, I thought of yeah. I thought of it when you said you know prepare for a lifetime because the thought is that if if they can learn to do that, that everything else will be easy. <laughs> um, um, you know, that's interesting. I think that the more comfortable we get with death, it, the easier it is. I mean, we had, you know, my, my daughter lives in Belgium and my two grandchildren. And so the last week or so before he started, we had a Skype and they said their goodbyes and they, they were part of the conversation. My oldest granddaughter at the time, so this was four years ago, four and a half years ago, she, she was probably... 12 and a half or so, and a few months before Alan started, my daughter brought her here so she could spend time with him and be with him, and we, we talk about him, and 
they are part of the process. They understand that death is a part of life. Death is just an extension of life. How can we even talk about life without talking about death? It would be like talking about light without talking about dark. It's a continuum. Life, death, death, life. And And a big part of the alleviation, I think, of my own fear is understanding these things that I'm talking about now. I didn't even think about them before, and I had tremendous fear around them, but I actually understand them. Alan had tremendous curiosity about what was going to come next. I do, too. Every day, I feel, on some ways, I am preparing to die. And, you know, I'm very aware of how recent that shift towards death as a as a medicalized event is um, in the sense that uh, my dad's grandmother died in their home. She right. was in the back room. Um, they right. took care of her and then she slipped away. Uh, exactly. And that isn't and that isn't that many generations back, you know? No. Um, that was common. <laughs> And it was, uh, we never talked a lot about it, but it was, um, my dad was also a quiet guy, um, but it was a perfectly natural thing. There was no sense of, of fear around it or, uh, or wrongness. It just was the way it was. Uh, and there was some mention of how hard my grandmother worked to take care of her. That was about it, <laughs> right. you know. Right, um, so, right. so I don't think it's far back in the memory banks of us as human beings, this idea of kind of acknowledging when death is coming and, and uh, preparing for it. Right. I mean, my, my mother lived with Alan and me for the last 11 and a half years of her life as a healthy woman after we had to place my dad in a facility for Alzheimer's and, um, she, you know, as I said, she lived to be 95 and a half, and we talked a lot about whether or not she was afraid of dying, and she always said she wasn't afraid of dying. And so the two people that I've been the closest to in my life, my mother and my husband, um, I've been present at their deaths, and they have very different kinds of deaths. Do I want to be SED? No, not particularly. Um, I will if it comes down to it, and I have to, but my mother had a beautiful death, and um, she had a premonition about her death, and um, told me about it. And then the next morning, um, she went into a light coma and died four days later. A very peaceful, beautiful death with ease after living a a good life. So there are these different examples. What a range of how different people die. Who knows? I mean, people die instantly in accidents all the time. We don't know. We don't know. That's so true. I I, uh, I remember after my mom died, my most my primary thought was, I know how the story ends now. <laughs> for for like a couple of weeks, that was just very present in my mind because it is the big uncertainty, right? Which which may yeah. be may be a big part of what inspires fear. I don't know. Um, this yeah. not knowing, I mean, I, not being able to exert some kind of um, authority over how that might unfold. I like to believe that the internal and deep and profound shifts that I've made inside myself will affect how I meet my own death. And an important thing is I don't have my husband there to take care of me. He left first. Uh, my, my one daughter and two grandkids live in Europe. I don't know who will be around me or what my end will be. But as long as I'm surrounded by love and kindness, I'm okay. That's all that I think is really, really important at this point. That is what I've, I've come to understand. There was so much also love and kindness that surrounded Alan and me when he was sick with both cancer and Alzheimer's. And one day I literally heard, I get these little downloads and guidance like a lot of us do. And I was doing yoga one morning and I heard love is kindness is. And what that meant was that love and kindness wasn't about individual people, certain 
certain exact people. It just was the vibration of love and kindness. And that's what matters to me now. And as much as I possibly can, that's how I choose to live my life today. You're reminding me of a, of a quote from the Dalai Lama, which is, my religion is kindness. Yeah, it's on my wall, um, you've, Carol. <laughs> you've, you've walked the same path there. And, and I, I have to, well, for one thing, that is what matters to people at the end of their life. By and large, if they've, if they're not in abject fear, uh, then they will probably be concerned with who's around them that loves them. That's right. And um, that's that's what I would hope for for sure. Um, I want to mention one other thing because I know we're getting close to the end of the hour. I want to mention that, in a larger sense, yes, I'm I'm sharing the story about how my husband died and he did die through stopping eating and drinking VSED. However, I'm, I'm not a, a VSED advocate. Really, in a much larger scale, I'm an advocate for expanding end-of-life choices. You know, I'm an advocate for cultivating awareness about dying. I intentionally did not use the word conscious dying because that is such a broad word that is so hard to put our fingers and arms and bodies around. So I'm and, an and maybe even loaded for some people. But I'm loaded. I'm, um, I'm an advocate for cultivating awareness. And I'm an advocate for preparing to die. And one of the ways we prepare to die is by cultivating awareness. Living, and that's living, and that's very clear in your book that you're writing you you're you've got this mission now because there isn't information out there about this and because you know a lot about it but not because that's the only choice people might make people make a huge variety of choices and Absolutely. Uh, I'm I'm with you entirely that that um the real mission is to um reincorporate the sense of choice about about what how we're going to face our own deaths so we're and let's yeah, keep yeah, in touch sure. and 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 cross-pollinate these ideas i want to really I thank know. you for being here today uh we've run out of time but i've really enjoyed the conversation keep me keep me updated about what you're doing i will and thank you so much for inviting me i've enjoyed our conversation too thank you you're welcome Next week, I'll have Mirabai Starr, whose book, Caravan of No Despair, a memoir of loss and transformation, chronicles the deepening of her spiritual practice, which was very substantial to begin with, after the death of her daughter in an auto accident. And she does say that that began her spiritual life, regardless of all she had done before that. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. 